Hello and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast. I'm Jeff Young. When Michael Sorrell took over as president of Paul Quinn College in 2007, the place was nearly broke and had faced a possible loss of accreditation. Sorrell wasn't interested in following the usual playbook for running a college, so he took unusual steps right out of the gate. He cut the football program, for instance, and turned the playing field into an urban farm. Just to put that move in perspective, this college is in Dallas, and they love football there. But Sorrell was focused on building a new model of higher education, one that mixes work readiness with expanding minds, and at a price that more students can afford. I recently talked with Sorrell about how his work college works, and I was struck by the winding path that he took to get this football field to be a farm. We'll have the conversation right after this. This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. We're here today talking with um, Dr. Michael Sorrell. He's president of Paul Quinn College, and it's just a pleasure to talk with you today. Thanks for being here. No, it's my pleasure. It's good to be here. You know, I have to ask you about your college's football field. Well, I guess <laughs> the former football field, because it's clearly a symbol of the changes that you've made at Park Wynn. Um, It sounds like, you know, one of your early decisions was to eliminate the football team, but it's not because you don't like sports. You know, in fact, you played college basketball yourself. So what's that about? Like, why did you do that? Why and what's going on there? Sure. So I believe in just using common sense. Right. I mean, I, I would, people ask me, what's my leadership style? I would tell them it's common sense leadership. So what you can do, you do. What you can't do, you do not do. We couldn't afford football. Um, it, it's that simple. It, we were losing 800000 to a million dollars a year on a football team that wasn't playing for national championships, that wasn't producing, you know, students that, graduated at a high enough clip and, and just was inconsistent with what we wanted to be as an institution. And, you know, people talk about opportunities and, you know, you want to compete, but, you know, institutions have a, a fabric that is, you know, kind of dictates how they feel about themselves. And there's a cost associated with losing all the time and being associated with losing. So, it just didn't work for us. And so the first week of my presidency, we terminated the football program. And, you know, we made sure people had places to go. We said we'd honor the scholarships of any students that had a B average or better, because again, we're not gonna pay for mediocrity. And we, we held true to that. And so here we are, we cut the football program. We've got this vacant football field and we're in a food desert. We were closer to the city garbage dump than we were the grocery store. And, you know, one day, I mean, this is total happenstance. The first two years of my presidency were extraordinarily difficult. Um, I think I think we lost something like 400 of the 550 students in the first two years. Hmm. And I come back from lunch one day and, you know, it's tough. Like these were not days where you felt great about life. and I get a message that a guy by the name of Trammell Crow had called. And I didn't know Trammell Crow. He was the son of the real estate magnate. 
And I thought it was a prank. I thought one of my friends was being a jerk. (laughs) So um, I call him back and it turns out it's legitimately Trammell Crow. And Trammell said, I'd like to go to lunch. So Trammell and I go to lunch and (laughs) we hit it off. And I'm sitting there and I got some advice from another college president who said, you know, when you're with people of means, you should just ask them for something. Get them in the habit of thinking of your institution as something they should support. And so I mentioned to Charles, I said, hey, you know, people in our neighborhood, they don't have a grocery store. And I think people should have a grocery store. And, you know, we're sort of walking through all of this. And without missing a beat, he sidesteps the grocery store conversation. He says, you know, what I'm really passionate about are community gardens. And I hadn't really done much thinking about community gardens prior to that moment. But I quickly recognized we're not going to get a grocery store. And so, you know, my response is, you know, I've recently become fascinated by community gardens myself. And he said, well, would you guys have an interest in a community garden? Do you have anywhere to put it? I said, yeah, we can put it on the football field. And he says, you can do that? I'm like, yeah, I'm the president. We can do whatever we want to do, right? Um, And that started what then led to a relationship with Pepsi, and we turned the whole football field into a two-acre organic farm. And, you know, look, it was absurd. We had no agriculture programs. I called up the woman who who built the farm. She was our staff member who was responsible for it. And I said, you're going to run our farm. And her response was, we don't have a farm. And I said, we're about to have a farm. (laughs) And she said, I don't know anything about farming. I was an econ major at Spelman. I said, I don't care about any of that. Just Google it, right? Figure it out. Literally, she Googled what grows in Dallas. That's how our farm started. And we've grown over 50,000 pounds of food since then. We give away 10% of everything that we grow. We call that tithing to the community. We have a 3,000 square foot greenhouse. We've got chickens. We've got bees. We're working on an orchard. Um, and all of that started because we just were unafraid to fail. And it was it was really a special experience. So um, there's so much in there that I think kind of goes with some of the other stuff that you're, you're doing or have done in the, in the 10 years you've been there. Um, I mean, you, you've got this um, innovative model that you're describing there that you, you know, there are a few countries in the college that call themselves work colleges. And yeah. you're, you've kind of um, taken a, a riff on that and, and said you're the only one that's an urban um, work college. So I guess I just, I, just for people who don't know the model, what is a, a, a work, an urban work college? So the primary difference, there's this amazing model of higher education that I would argue has been completely underutilized. And that the work colleges. And at work colleges, students are required to work and go to classes. And you work, you know, 10 to 15 hours per week and you take classes you have a work transcript and an academic transcript and the work matters as much as your studies you can be put on probation academic probation for not fulfilling your work assignment responsibilities and it gives the students an opportunity to graduate with having four years of real world work experience well all those schools are in rural areas we're not we're in the ninth largest city in the country. So we needed a different version of that model. And I wrote my dissertation. I went back and got a doctorate in part so I could write a dissertation around this idea. 
you know, I had this symphony in my head and I, I needed to get it out. And um, so here we are, we're, I'm doing the research and, you know, I'm researching why they didn't succeed for part of my paper at the dissertation. And it turns out part of the reason they didn't succeed because people couldn't figure out how to make the work something attractive, that the work that they were assigning their students to do was drudgery. And you see it in really how the work colleges describe work. They talk about it being labor. Well, I've got students from urban areas. I can't sell come labor for four years. Nobody's gonna buy that. So we're in a major business center. So why wouldn't we get our students off campus and into corporate jobs so that they then have these experiences of being you know, effective leaders and you know, graduating with pre-professional training. Our students are Pell Grant students. So we need to get them exposed to more. They haven't been exposed to enough. So we look up, our version requires students to go work off campus for part of their four years in corporate work jobs. So we take advantage of being in an urban area through that way. And it has been an amazing success. And you know, we're, we're gonna create a national network of urban work colleges. So we are just, we're incredibly excited. There's this tension these days, I know you probably heard it, between whether college should prepare students for work and they're getting that first job, or if it should be preparing them in this academic, big picture way for the life they're going to lead holistically and not think so much about that first job. And I guess in your view, you know, what is college for? Yeah. Well, so let me preface this by saying I went to one of the most liberal arts of the liberal arts college. Right. I mean, I am a product of Oberlin College. Oberlin, yeah. You know, I take the mind, the, the pursuits of the mind seriously, okay? Um, but I also have a master's in public policy. I have a law degree and I have a doctorate, all right? So it is, to me, a bit unrealistic to expect people just to learn, to learn for the sake of learning with no regard for what happens next. Right. I think that that is disrespectful to the families who have made enormous sacrifices for their children to be there. Of course, you need to be able to draw a line for them from point A from point B. But you shouldn't be a prisoner to the choices you made at 18. Okay, I started out college pre-med. That lasted one semester. Okay, it was a disaster. Okay, just. But I think the liberal arts colleges didn't do a good job of that. I think college in general, uh, colleges in general, higher education hasn't always been an effective communicator about what's important. But I liken this, this tension to the tension between W.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington, right? The idea of do we think or do we teach the students to do? It should have never been either or, it was always both and. This is that same argument. We tell our families, we're going to teach your students how to think and how to do. Because in the shifting universe that is today's society, you cannot be trained to do just one thing because then you will never evolve and you will be easily typecast. You'll be easily bypassed for people who have a variety of skills. So I just don't know why we can't do both. We can do both. We challenge others to follow our lead and do it. I think I read that you have young kids, and I, I do too, actually. It sounds almost like Montessori school, where one of, <laughs> where one of my kids is. Um, it, 
I I went. I started out in Montessori. Okay. <laughs> my son started out. In Mont- I have a seven-year-old and a, a soon-to-be three-year-old. Oh, cool! I have a six and three. That's right. Yeah. Welcome to. I'm happy to be in that club, right? Uh, my son started out in Montessori school, but it's really. I mean, here's the thing, right? I think too many people in higher ed have fallen in love with themselves and forgotten why we're here. Okay. We, one of the beauties of being president of Paulson College is we were a struggling and failing institution when I took over. We were unencumbered by a history of success. So we could just do whatever the hell we wanted to do. Okay. We could look for inspiration in lots of different places. So of course we looked at different forms and, and asked ourselves, why do we have to do it that way? Why does that make sense? Maybe it made sense 40, 50, 60, 100 years ago. Maybe it doesn't make sense right now. If we were going to design a school for today and tomorrow, what would that school look like? And, that, and this goes back to what I said before about common sense leadership. Why wouldn't you listen to your, your customers, right? And I know some people bristle at the idea of your students as your customers. They're paying you, right? I mean, it's a business relationship. We're in the business of education. You better listen to your customer. You better understand what the students want. You better understand what their families want because they have a right in the marketplace to continue to search for the services that they desire. Hmm. We're trying to be good stewards of their faith. I just read the other day this. There's an article in the Center for Investigative Reporting's Reveal Project that that found that financial aid is really going to the rich um, much more than it is to students in need, and that there's, but there's kind of a misunderstanding about that in our society. That it, one quote in this was that there's a warped view among Americans um, about where money is actually going in this college, college scholarship world. And I've heard you talk about college debt. H- how did how did higher ed get get where it is on this score, do you think? Well, I think everybody wanted to be Saks Fifth Avenue when what America really needed were Walmarts, mm. right? I mean, like, think about it. We, we talk about innovation at our school, but we're not Stanford and MIT version of innovation. Mm. That's Saks Fifth Avenue. That's Neiman Marcus, okay? We are innovation for everyone. That's Walmart innovation. Okay, so you see institutions that, and and look, some of this is the U.S. News and World Report rankings, right? Everyone wants to be elite, however you define elite. But elite is, where are you in those rankings? Now, students cared about that. Donors cared about it. So it's not as if people just you know, said, I don't care about it all. And, you know, I'll make this up. My own. I mean, they came upon it honestly. All right. But it doesn't mean that it's right. Hmm. And so we became broken as an industry. because Everyone wanted to be one thing. And we forgot that some of us weren't meant to be that thing. Some of us were meant to provide services to different kinds of students. 85 to 90% of my students are Pell Grant eligible. How do I not be concerned with the cost of education? How do I think that I can just continue to raise prices and then not have an adverse impact on them? Maybe you can do that if you don't talk to your students, if you don't know your students, but you can't do it if you, if you purport to care about them and then you don't do the things that they care about. 
and just to, to be clear, I've, as I've heard you talk about, your your work college model is also to get at that price, to get the price down, to have this in a, this model where some of the work they're doing is actually lessening the amount of their financial burden. Is that correct? That's, that, that's absolutely right. So we cut tuition fees by ten thousand dollars. We went mm. from charging twenty three thousand eight hundred down to about fourteen thousand four hundred. Hmm. Right? Hmm. And so we created this model where students can graduate only less than ten thousand dollars of debt after four years. This is in response to listening to what our students said. They were struggling. They were poor, they were poorly capitalized. They, I mean, it was hard for them. So why, why wouldn't we listen? Why wouldn't we take their needs into concern? Why, I mean, this is the beauty of being an institution that cares. Prove it. When you talk about Walmart and higher ed, I know a lot of people in higher ed that I've talked to would bristle at that, right? And, and I've, you know, but despite the access issue, right? It does seem like there's this huge tension. And especially when you're trying to also say that you're, you're quality, right? You're, you're not saying that you're, yeah, you're not trying to say that you're a lesser education. You're just trying to say you're offering something different, if, if, if I understand well, you correctly. Right. I mean, How do you communicate that, though, when you're trying to get, you're trying to get excellent students, you're trying to get... Well, first of all, let's understand that only out-of-touch condescending people would think that Walmart didn't provide a quality service, right? Like, I mean, and that's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. People bristle because they fundamentally have no idea what everybody else's life is like. Mm-hmm. Right, and how insulting it is for you to say, and not you, right? I'm talking about no, the- No, I'm talking about a class issue here. Yeah, it's a class issue, right? Mm-hmm. And look, I get it. My parents grew up, I mean, like my family made lots of money, okay? I went to the best private schools, but here's the difference. My father never went to college. He was he an entrepreneur, out- right? An entrepreneur, right. And entrepreneurship, in one generation took my family on my father's side from a man who never stepped foot on a college campus to a son who's a college president, right? My mother grew up poor in the rural South. Her family was so poor that when she and her first cousin went to college together, the family, when they pulled their resources, couldn't afford everything they needed plus two sets of clothing. So they had one set of clothing. No problem except my mother's 5'11", my aunt's 5'6". Okay, so... It's like, you've got to understand that it's okay to listen to everyone. I mean, like, that's part of our problem in this country. We don't, we spend very little time talking to each other. We arrive at conversations with predetermined outcomes based upon our personal beliefs and values, which leave us no room then for finding a middle ground where we can go forward together, Okay. I love, I love elite education. I am the product of elite education. But I love my students having better lives, okay? I didn't come to this profession just so that I could sit around and talk to other college presidents and, and other leaders in higher education about problems and not actually understand the problems we're trying to serve. I'm here for my students. I'm here for the communities that sent them to us. Our institutions should respond to the needs of the students we have, right? How warped is it that instead of finding and figuring out ways to educate students from our under-resourced communities, our inner cities, our rural poor, that we instead 
went looking overseas to places where we could charge full price and not have to subsidize the students. I get it. It's a business. What I'm saying is a business for who? Who are we in tune with? Who are we trying to support and help? At Paul Quinn College, we're here to speak for those who aren't often spoken to and to give a voice to the voiceless. I think part of the reason people are so angry at higher ed is because they don't see them doing enough for enough people. So we think you turn the institution outward, address the needs of the people and the communities you serve and the needs and the issues of the day. Hmm. But higher ed does feel under attack sometimes. It seems like there's this, um, we're in a, a different moment. Um, we are in a different moment and we are under attack, but I don't believe in playing victim, hmm. right? When we had 200 students, our whole theory was we're nation building, hmm. right? We're building a nation. We are coming forward. We have something of value to say, and we're, it's about much, much more than ourselves. And that's, I think that's why people, I mean, think about this for a moment. So you're doing an interview with a guy from a school that no one ever talked about prior to us changing like our focus, right? Sure. And I'm a college president that didn't come through anyone's ranks, okay? Mm. Like, I came, I stormed the castle, right? Let's just call it that way. 50 years ago, 30 years ago, it would be unheard of. I never, my opinions, my thoughts, our institutional voice would never have been given a platform. It's being given a platform today because we speak to the issues that people are struggling with. Mm -hmm. That's different. That, that is, there's power in meeting people where they are and teaching them to dream differently. That's what we're doing, and we're proud of it. There's, um, there's one program I meant to ask you about that is just a, uh, just to go smaller for a second, yeah. which is I understand you guys are moving away or maybe you've already moved away from textbooks. Yeah. And, yeah. And, because they can be expensive. But what do you do instead? What's that about? We use open source materials. So, you know, between the internet and other sources, you can find plenty of education. Just like when you started the farm and you Googled it. Yeah. You Google, right? We Google it. And listen, I'm a professor. I teach. So I don't expect anyone to do things that I'm not doing. Mm -hmm. So I don't use textbooks. I use other sources of it. But the other reason is unintentionally, there was a caste system being created in our classrooms. Those students who could buy the books and those students who couldn't buy the books. And the students who weren't buying the books, they weren't buying the books because they didn't care about the lessons. Hmm. They weren't buying the books because they had other pressing financial demands in their lives that precluded them from doing that. So you were getting a classroom situation where some of your students had the means to buy the books, some didn't. Why would you do that? Why would you make people feel worse about themselves and their circumstances? So we got rid of it. Hmm. And... It works beautifully. So there's no the cost for these materials or? No cost for the materials. And if professors want to charge for them, we just tell them that's great. Just raise the money yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. And well, I'll definitely, I hope to talk to you again. And I know it sounds like there's there's more to come. So where are you working on? So Yeah, we're just warming up. <laughs> sounds good. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dr. Uh, Sorrell. Thank this has been the Ed Surge on Air podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on whatever app or website you use to listen in. And if you take a minute to give us a rating, it'll help others find us. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. 
We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.